0: True crime can be read for several reasons And one of them is to learn something about a specific time In the culture surrounding local crimes Under a Full Moon takes readers back to a time when Lynching and mob mentality were still acceptable Stay with me as we dive into this debut book by Alice K. Hill Thanks for joining Imagine Publicity on Air, which is Partner sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity. The podcast covers a variety of topics for those of you who might be interested in current events or issues of importance, true crime, business, history, and of course, books and authors. I'm your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. It's a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. Not only do I offer full services, but also training to those who prefer to personally handle their own accounts. So there's my, my... unabashed plug for business, and now I would love to say hello to Alice K. Hill. Good morning. Good morning. Um, You know, I think it's interesting to me, an author's background, it often tells a story that is just as interesting or just as fascinating as the, the topics that they write about. Can you come... Lead us through your background and what brought you to this.
1: I'd be happy to. Um, both of my parents were published authors. I was raised in an Air Force family and was born in Paris, France. And then we moved from France to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, when I was three years old. We lived on a military base for uh, the next um, six years, and then my father retired to Camp Florida. But every summer, I would spend in Kansas with my my mother's mother the my grandmother, who uh, was part of a family that had been uh, early homesteaders in Rollins County, Kansas, and we still had farmland that was not farmed by family, but I became very, very enamored of the smell of soil and the beautiful growing wheat. And the sense of cycles of nature, while I spent summers in Kansas, and it truly felt like where I belonged. And as I got older, um, in 1975, I married another uh, local family man. Um, he was uh, also seven generations or five generations of of Kansas um, living. His his great grandparents had come from Czechoslovakia and settled in Rollins County. And so I started my life as a farm wife at the age of 18, and he was eight, 21, and we we began a farm together, uh, started out completely on our own in horrid debt, um, unbelievable debt, and hit the farm crisis of the 80s just head-on um, Went through bankruptcy, lost everything. We had one little girl already and a second little girl on the way. And it, it completely uh, uprooted our lives, but we continued to stay in Rollins County. And it actually opened up opportunities for us that we could have never dreamed of. Um, we started over. I went back to school and got a degree as a registered nurse and part of what happened while I was doing all of that was I began doing a lot of writing. And I had to write for school. I had to write for grants. I had to write for scholarships. I had uh, some of my college classes required, um, essays to be written. And I realized that there was a strong need in my life to continue writing and to continue that, the family uh, legacy of being uh, an author. Uh, that is basically where I I was when the uh, when the book um, Under a Full Moon got its start. Well, then you know that's
0: it's a great story. It's a great life that you've led, and I think one of the things that probably I guess contributed to a lot of. Your character or your stick to would be losing everything. And with so many other hundreds and hundreds of farmers in the 80s, I, I totally remember that, totally. And it has never recovered.
1: No, and, and in fact, as, as a reader goes through the history that is outlined in Under a Full Moon, the, the stories begin in 1881 when the families, the primary families involved in this uh, story arrived in Kansas. And that's that was one of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to unravel the why of the final crime. The Why did this occur? crime occur? How did it occur? How did all of these families' paths cross? And that led me clear back to their arrival in Kansas. And be, and because of my personal uh, life experience of growing up in Kansas, experiencing Kansas summers and Kansas winters and the struggle of Kansas farmers, I knew that I could put that passion and into this into this book and, and make it very, very livable, um, and that was one of my goals. I wanted people to know what it felt like to, to live out in Kansas during that time. Actually, very little has changed. Um, Kansas has never been an easy farming state. There are much easier states to farm in, and western Kansas in particular. Uh, you know, at a time it was called the Great American Desert, and we frequently would have less than 18 inches of rain in an entire growing season. We could only get a crop off of a piece of ground every other year. It, so if that crop failed, you'd lost two years worth of work. Um, another issue with farming is that you have no control over your costs, and you have no control over what you sell your product for um, when when it's Wheat harvest time, you load your trucks, you take it to the grain elevator, and you say, "Well, what's the market today? What will you give me for my wheat?" And doesn't matter whether you've got five dollars a bushel in it. If it's selling at three, that's what you get. So it's it's a tough, tough world. Um, on the other hand, don't want to be anywhere else. So <laughs> so there's a lot of pride, there's a lot of tenacity in in a Kansas farmer.
0: So you never know from one harvest to the next harvest what what you can budget for as far as income. How how do you how do you take what you make and continue it continue the process moving forward if you don't know what it is you're gonna get?
1: Well, you've said it in a nutshell and basically our entire lives, even after we went through bankruptcy, we started back up again. And we did a lot of innovative things to try and make ourselves survival or or sustainable. I I was a registered nurse, so I was working full-time in town. Um, My husband got a town job as well. We developed a, a lodge off of our place. We transitioned to organic. We did everything we possibly could. But basically what we were were very good bank employees because every year we would go in and borrow money, operate and then at the end of the year we would pay all the interest plus some and then typically have to borrow some more and so almost 40 years we lived in constant debt and it it, it, that's that is the norm that is the normal way kansas farmers live they turn a lot of money over but yeah go ahead
0: My question was, so, you know, you basically have to have a day job and the farming, have you seen farming almost become like a hobby for some people rather than banking everything that that you need on solely being a farmer? And as soon as... Alice calls back in. We will get the answer to that question. I, I must tell you, this is one fascinating story. And as soon as as soon as she's able to get back in, we will start going into the the book itself under a full moon because it's historically an excellent story and it's an excellent book. So, Alice, tell me. Um, What was it, how how and why did you choose this particular crime out of, I'm sure, you know, there were other crimes in, in the local areas that you could have written about, but why this one?
1: This story has a very personal connection on many levels, and I won't be able to explain all of it in this short period of time, but I will tell you how it started. My grandmother, who we spend every summer with, had warned us as little girls never to get in a car with a stranger, never to accept candy from a man, never be coaxed into going with somebody that you didn't know. And she went on to explain that there had been an 8-year-old girl in our county who had been kidnapped and brutally killed. And she, my grandmother was fairly graphic in her telling of this and when I asked her why, why would a man hurt a little girl, she said, well, he was retarded. Now, that stayed in my mind, and off I went, grew up, did many things. When my mother passed away, she left some inheritance, and I and my husband decided to crazy us the 1907 opera house that was in town in Atwood. And it had had been um, worked with by other people, but it was in pretty rough shape when we purchased it. And we wanted to start a fine dining restaurant using locally produced food. Well, part of what we did was we wanted to get the building listed on the Kansas, uh, on the historic registries. And so that started a very in-depth research in order to uh, validate its its uh, historic uh, position. And one of the things I found out was that the little girl was last seen alive in that building. And uh, are you there? Yes. Yes. No. Go ahead. Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry it got so <laughs> quiet. I thought maybe we <laughs> dropped a call again. uh, uh so what had happened was, in 1932, the Opera House housed the Owl Cafe. Now, the man had kept the little girl out all night long, out in the country, driving around. Nobody knows exactly what happened. But that next morning, he brought her into Atwood, which was not her hometown. There are there's several towns involved in this event. But he brought her into Atwood, and he took her for a late breakfast in the Owl Cafe. Well, when I realized that this is the same story that my grandmother had warned me about, I was absolutely fascinated. I thought, they they shared the same space I'm sharing. And and I, I felt compelled to, to find out more. And I had heard the this, this same story that was repeated over and over again that, This man had kidnapped her, and he'd killed her and hidden her, and then he was lynched. I'd heard the basics, but I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why. And that began an in-depth research. Next thing I found out is that he had a previous criminal event in his life. In 1916, he had brutally molested a young girl Um, She was 15 years old, and he was, of course, a younger man at that time, too. But he, he had brutalized her out in eastern Colorado where he was homesteading. And he was placed in the Colorado Penitentiary. And I was able to find his prison record number, and I went to Denver and went to the Colorado Archives and asked for information on him. And they provided me a photograph of his prison input. And when I saw his face, when I, he was, he was, it was a very up-close facial shot, a man wearing his prison shirt. When I saw his eyes, I truthfully felt he spoke to me and said, tell my story. And I was hooked. That was it. I had to to find out why. And that led to – go ahead. Go ahead. No, please go ahead and finish. Well, it, 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 it it was 16 years of not totally steady research, but I never stopped working. I never stopped researching to pull all of this information together to make it cohesive, to make it understandable. So yeah, so it, it was it was quite a journey. It really was, and it all started with my grandmother and the opera house. Hmm. Well, let's
0: let's talk a little bit about the, the the characters in in this book. His name is Richard Reed. Is that correct? And, yeah, I mean, his, you... his
1: birth he, he, his birth name was Pleasant Richardson Reed. He was named after his grandfather, but people just called him Richard or Rich.
0: And you, you explained a little bit about his his background, but what else do we know about him?
1: Well, when I saw his prison photograph, one of the first things that caught my eye was that behind his ear was a curved scar, and it looked exactly like the uh, imprint of a horse hoof. And it made me, first of all, realize number one. He certainly could have gotten kicked in the head by a horse. That was totally a believable um, event in those days. When they came in 1881, all there were were horses and mules, and children were always getting kicked and trampled and drugged to death. So I thought traumatic brain injury. There, There's a reason why they would have said this man was retarded. If he had a traumatic brain injury, it would have totally changed his demeanor and that was that was the first sense that i had why he might have committed a crime then as i began to research further uh the the stories over and over again and these were validated through uh, personal interviews newspaper clippings is that people were afraid of him and they they uh thought of him they they called him an ape man so whenever as a school nurse whenever a child is considered abnormal for whatever reason whether it's a physical disfigurement whether it's a mental uh, disability whether it's um, emotional psychosocial disability when they stand out in a negative manner their lives are miserable and that's the theme I went with for Richard Reed was that he was isolated he was ostracized he had no outlet for a normal relationship with anyone and that's that's to me the answers why a man who was 53 years old would pick up an 8 year old girl and drive her around the whole night i i thought this makes sense and then there's one other factor that certainly plays a huge part, and that was bootleg liquor. Um, Kansas, of course, was um, a dry state to start with, and then when Prohibition came in, um, the only alcohol available was, was home brew, and it was dangerous, dangerous stuff. And if you have a traumatic brain injury, if you have emotional disabilities, and then you throw in alcohol, then that's a that's a huge factor as well for violent criminal behavior. Mm.
0: Well, it just sets up the perfect storm.
1: Mm-hmm. It really well, does. Yes.
0: What can you tell us about the victim, Dorothy Hunter? Do yeah, she do we know things about her?
1: Not much. She only was you know eight year old girl. Not a lot. Not a lot to be able to tell, but. But there were – one thing I know her – very good – she was on her way home from school with her sister and a friend. It was the last day of school in April, and she realized she'd left her lunch pail at the school, and she knew she had to go back for it. That was, you know – and children – children back then, there weren't cell phones, there weren't, um, you know, you couldn't instant message anybody. So she turned around and went back to the school, and that was the last her family saw her. And he was on his way back, Richard Reed was on his way back from a neighboring town. He admitted to having gone there to buy liquor, and he was passing through her town on the way to his farm, and she just happened to be in the in the street, and he coaxed her in somehow and that was that was the beginning of it mm. so what what can
0: you tell us about the culture of the time what what was you know the law and order culture the the attitudes um towards a crime like this
1: well Of course, this had been a a very Wild West area, and there had been lynchings and shootings, and if you were a horse thief, you might as well say your prayers. You were going to die. But those were all in the past. And in 1932, although there there was a rise in crime nationwide because of the Depression, because of the, the, the displacement of many families, farms because of the dust bowl was already underway so there had been a rise in in nationwide crime but nothing in that area Um, and yet these were farmer rancher types who were used to dealing with survival on a day-to-day basis if there's a rattlesnake in your yard he's a dead rattlesnake if there's a coyote after your your newborn calves this is a dead coyote they knew how to take action when needed, but it wasn't um, a lawless community by any means um, hardworking conservative family oriented people um, and the the one of the very sad parts of this is that Richard Reed was the son of a of a prominent well respected family farmers. they were not. It wasn't like he was a stranger passing through town. he was they were well uh, well suited in the community and well known in the community. So there were multiple victims involved, including the group who lynched him. in uh, in many respects, I think about how impactful that was in their lives that that night would have never left their psyches. Um, and there was a code of silence because of course, lynching was totally illegal. They were they were all at risk of being considered criminals themselves.
0: Um, How so it, many people were involved in the lynching. Was it, you know, a small group of people or was it a lot of people?
1: It's an interesting question because the newspapers, the range was everything from 1,500 or more down to a much smaller, more reasonable, common sense number. One of the most intriguing. Resources I had was an interview done by another gentleman with one of the men who was part of the lynching mob, and one of his statements was, "There's a lot of reports out there, and most of them are exaggerated. I know because I was there. So my account is based on what he what he said." Um, w- I, as I was doing research, what I realized is there was a lot of mistakes recorded in in newspapers and in um, accounts that were written after the fact. And I would have to take oh, say four different accounts of a specific thing and look for the two things that match. And then that made me feel like, well, yes, that and does it make sense for the area? Does it make sense for the community? Um, even even well published books there were there were mistakes misspelled names um, wrong counties so it it took some digging out to try and find what i felt was the accurate truth
0: so you yeah, know imagine these it's number. hard to yeah. it's hard to verify when was it you know was it like 100 people 5 people or, or oh, do probably, they vary that probably, much in the account it, it,
1: well it varies quite considerably, but there were probably about five or six cars of men who came from the hometown of Selden. That's where the little girl had had her funeral, and after the funeral, the men decided they were going to take care of this once and for all. Um, You know, the first time that Richard Reed had been put in the Colorado Penitentiary, he was released early on good behavior. And he should never have been allowed to leave the state. But they, sent, they put him on a train and they sent him back home to his little town of Rexford, Kansas. And the community, of course, realized that justice had, been, had, had failed them. The legal system had failed them. Also, the governor of Kansas had just vetoed capital punishment. Um, the, the voters wanted it. But he vetoed it because he said there wasn't enough money to, to, to put in an electric chair. And so he said, if we don't have the money for the electric chair, there's no sense in having capital punishment. So when the community knew all of that background, they, they I believe they just thought, this is it, we're done, we're, we're, we're eliminating this predator in our midst.
0: Well, was there was there anyone left in the area that you could, or that maybe you did interview about this that maybe had other knowledge, or you know, maybe not have been party to it, but maybe had a closer knowledge to it.
1: I did interview uh, several several individuals. the uh, The event occurred almost 90 years ago now. Um, and if, if they were an adult at the time of it many many of them had already passed away before before I began my research but i i did speak with some people who had um not maybe first hand account but the next generation down and they they remembered the fear more than anything that's whenever i would talk to anybody you could you could just sense that they were still traumatized by that event but as far as actual names and numbers and data, they they didn't. Nobody had that kind of information. Um, they certainly weren't sharing names. Still, there's still a lot of family members distant, but there's many of the family members are still in the area. That was my
0: next question was, you know, if the Reed, let's say the Reed family who you say was was pretty prominent in the area at the time, are there descendants that still live in the area?
1: I don't believe there's anybody with the last name of Reed now, but there's probably cousins. It was a large family. There were, I think, 12 children, and um, they all, of course, had children. At the conclusion of the book, I do tell... Uh, the 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 final chapter of each of
0: sometimes you know we never know what the full impact is on a family that's uh, you know that has a member there there's such a huge ripple effect when a crime like this occurs and not only. In the victim's family, which you know is is definitely going to be the worst impact ever when you lose a family member to a violent crime such as this, but also there's an impact in the family of the person who who commits this type of a violent crime um you know for whatever reasons that might be that he you know Richard Reed was definitely. Um, I would say, I would describe probably the black sheep of that family that they, you know, with, with the brain injury and with, with the mental disabilities that he's had, um, you know, obviously there's a ripple effect throughout the community on that. And then to put a lynching on top of it, it just reaches, reaches out even further.
1: It certainly does. It does. And To show how isolated and ostracized he was, very close to the end, very close to the 1932 event, there was a big birthday celebration for Mrs. Reed, the mother. And they talked in the newspaper, in their little social uh, blurb, all of the children who came back from here and came back from there and brought the grandchildren, all of them were mentioned except Richard. Richard. And he was actually living on the farm, but his name was not mentioned as part of the celebration. And that is so telling. It just, it pretty well broke my heart when I read that um, to think he would not even be included in his own mother's birthday celebration. Mm.
0: Mm, yeah, it's you know, and it, it was a different time and different attitudes. And when something like that negatively impacted a family, it was kind of like you just write that off, don't ever speak about it again. And yes, you know, and that in it, itself not, is is causes psychological problems on down.
1: It certainly does. And one of the again, uh, you asked it earlier on why did this story have such impact for me. Uh, One of the many jobs that my husband and I did, we became what were known as family teachers for developmentally delayed adults. We lived in a home with them and gave them their cares and um, helped them to feel comfortable in their lives. And many of them had been brought directly out of institutions because they were of that era that was born when, if a child was born with something wrong, either Down syndrome or some other issue, they were the parents were told, pretend your child died, don't ever think about them again, and they were put in institutions for the rest of their lives. And then the, during the period of time when the institutions were deinstitutionalized and all of these people were released from mental facilities, they came into residential programs so my husband and i were firsthand um recipients of that change in in dynamics change in um policy and our children grew up our two daughters grew up with a house full of men who had some of them had dual diagnoses some were mentally retarded some were mentally ill and some were both and it gave us a real handle of what life can be like for from no fault of their own, they are that much different than the general population. And one of the most I, interesting. Go ahead. Sorry.
0: Well, I was just going to say I have to commend you for this for taking on something like that as a as a profession because I work with a nonprofit agency who who works with adults with intellectual and and developmental disabilities, and I've I've learned so much over the years working <laughs> for them that, and it's still, you know, the stigma is still there, and we just can't seem to get over it. No, no,
1: we can't. We can't. But here is one of these quirky, quirky things in in this whole story, is that one of the men that we took care of, one of the men who lived in our household, was the grandson of the arresting sheriff. And that is a whole subject in itself. It is so the 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 overlapping of lives that occurred as and I did not know any of this until I began the research and began the writing of the book and then it all just started like layers of an onion <laughs> there it all, all right
0: that's that's just an amazing part of the story as well as 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 far as how many things and people surrounded you, I mean you, you had no choice but to write and tell this story. You know that.
1: <laughs> I, I truly believe I was compelled by my bigger forces, and that when I, when I was writing and I would get into the zone, the, I guess you call it that when you when you feel as though something is streaming into you and you are a conduit to just get it on paper. I really feel like these stories were being told and so that it would make a difference. And that's my biggest hope in this writing of this is that as the reader completes it and is impacted by it, if they see a child or a young person or anyone being mistreated, abused, frightened, hurt, whatever, that they will stand up and say, just a minute, that, this isn't right this isn't right, and I'm not going to tolerate it, and we, you know, there, there was an opportunity for Dorothy Hunter to have been saved, and if Dorothy Hunter had been saved in that cafe, then Richard Reed would not have committed a second murder, at least not that day, and nobody would have had to have been part of a lynch lynch mob, at least at that point. And I have no doubt whatsoever somebody knew that little girl was frightened, that little girl was sad, that little girl needed some protection, but no one spoke up. And so I know. my hope it's... is that people, yeah, if people will read this and then speak up. If they'll say, make a difference, that's what my, my real goal is.
0: Yes, and it's absolutely even that that lesson just comes threading through up until today, absolutely, so tell me let's let's tell people where can they where can they buy this book?
1: Well, it's available through Wild Blue Press, which I am so thankful for their um belief in this book. They've just done such a lovely job with it. Then uh, Wild Blue Press uh, has it on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon.com, there's both the paperback and Kindle version, and an audiobook version is being uh, produced currently. I'm not sure when that will be available, uh, but that's an exciting um, avenue as well for those who like to listen to a book.
0: Absolutely. Do you do you have a website, social media,
1: where can I, people I do, find I you? Just, um, if you'll if you will I guess Google A K Hill or Alice K. Hill, it, it should start popping up now. I'm 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 not really fluent in that area. I know that's your expertise. <laughs> I wish I had you right next to me. <laughs> but I'm well, working on those those things.
0: Maybe we can do Facebook something page. about
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Well thank you. We'll we'll see, see how things yeah. go. But I um I do have I do have a little presence on the On the big wide world web.
0: (laughs) Great. And and what future projects do you have your fingers in? Are you are you looking at a a a second book?
1: I have I have a a possibility. uh, This one is still so uh, intense right now that I haven't any further. But it's been in my my to do file for some time. It's it's another true crime event that occurred in our county. Earlier, it was an event that happened in the 1800s, but it was um, pretty gruesome. A family that seemed to absorb strangers, and then they would not leave the place. So, that one's going to be interesting to see if I make any progress on it. Um, Then, my own my own farm wife story is so. It's pretty strong as well. You know, when I began farming with my husband 40-plus years ago, I think it was 3% of the nation were family farmers. We are now less than half a percent, and we are dwindling very quickly. And at half a percent, we are really the truest minority left in America, and we hold our food supply, but Man, it's just a a strange world. I think with COVID and the disruption of the food supply, people have realized how broken the system is. Um, But I don't know if it can be fixed in time. So that's that's Mm an area I'm very passionate about as well, Um, local food and feeding ourselves and
0: just getting all of our food again. I think that in itself is is the information that needs to be pushed out there. Is the fact that we we have to get back to the basics of farming in our country. I mean, there's there's just no two ways about it. You know, if you if you can't control your food source, then your water sources, then you know you've got trouble on a big scale.
1: Yes you do. Those are those are the biggest priorities of all. I have written another book actually. It was a self published um on Amazon. It's called Grow Topless <laughs> and I <laughs> I know it's a funny title. And it's got a really cute cover. Uh but it is a it is a modified high tunnel design that I conceived out here while trying to grow food for lots of different reasons and it's it's a very great great idea and i'm hoping i'm hoping it catches on well um i only wrote the book so that i could disseminate the the knowledge as broadly as possible but if if folks go to amazon and they type in my name that one will should pop up as well
0: that's great i'm going to hunt that down thank you for bringing that All up right. yeah and You're thank welcome. you thank so you. much for for taking your time to come on air with me today. I I really appreciate that and I I've, I've got to encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast to get online, go to amazon, go to wildbluepress.com and order your copy of Under a Full Moon by Alice K Hill. And you won't be sorry, I promise it's It's just a fascinating read, and I can't wait for more things to come from you too, Alice. Thank you so much.
1: Well, I am so thankful for this opportunity it's been just delightful to visit with you. Thank you and thank you to all of your listeners.
0: you bet well as as we all go back out into the to the world and hopefully. Your area is opening up in the proper way. Hopefully, you know, the the COVID cases are going to disappear shortly. But, uh, you know, I want to say, I want to bring up the fact of what you had mentioned earlier. When you see someone in distress, you know it. You know in your heart, you know in your gut that something is not right here. You've got to have the courage to do something about it, and you've got to do the right thing. So when you go out there into this world, how far or or not far that you go, just remember to please be kind to each other. I love it. (laughs)